You know, I was still kind of, my Spanish is my, is my second language, and I was going, well, what do you mean by that, Hector? And he said, well, you know, I'm a medium, and I have a lot of spirits speaking through me all the time. So how do I know when the Holy Spirit is speaking to me? And I was like, I was trying to process this in, in Spanish. And I'm like, did I hear what I thought I heard? You're a medium. He said, yeah, I'm a medium. And you have lots of spirits that come into you and they speak through you. Said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, well, let's look at, I, think I, I, the, I pointed him to um, Saul. And the incident where Saul went to a medium as he was desperately trying to salvage his life and he went to the witch of Endor, and he was rebuked. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about mediums and spiritists, and none of them are good. And so we talked about that for a little while, and we talked about how God is good, that the Spirit of God is good. And uh, went through the week, we were meeting weekly, and before, before our, our next meeting was to come up, I think it was on Wednesday, he called and said, I need to talk to you. I've got to see you. And we were having Bible studies on a, a, a school in Reform, and so I told him where I was going to be, and he came down in a taxi. He wouldn't even come into the building. So he called me outside, and he looked a mess. He hadn't been able to sleep since we, our last talk. Him and his wife were desperate. They couldn't sleep at all, hadn't had a wink of sleep. And they looked terrible. And he asked, what can I do? They won't let me sleep. These spirits won't let me sleep. So I prayed over him. And um, he drove off, and I never saw him again. But the question he asked, I think, is a really relevant question for us today. How do you know when the Spirit of God is speaking to you? How do you know that the Spirit of God is within you? How do you know that? Today, I'm praying that the Lord would show us, show us His Spirit within us, show us how we can know when he's speaking to us and that we can know the difference between me speaking to you and God speaking to you. So can we stand for the hearing of God's word?
claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed, when they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who then they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that throughout the laying of the apostles' hands the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You be seated. So there's three points I would like us to consider today as we look into uh, this passage. First, is the proclamation of good news can and does result in persecution, and persecution results in a martyr's testimony. Number two, the proclamation of the gospel is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is an essential part of the good news. And then finally, the gospel confronts our idolatrous, narcissistic self, revealing our need for confession and repentance. So as we look at Acts uh, 8, the first, uh, we need to put everything in perspective, and I think we need a little bit of a, a review. We think of Acts 1-8 as kind of an overview and theme of Acts, if you remember Acts 1.8 says that uh, I will give you power in Jerusalem where you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And that kind of gives you an outline of the book of Acts. Um, and here at chapter 8, we are really kind of at a turning point. Because here we see the apostles have been witnesses in Jerusalem. And the result of that is persecution. Persecution and even death, the death of Stephen. And that also leads to a scattering. And so now we find Philip going into, um, um, into uh, Samaria. And, and so this is following that, that Acts 1, uh, verse 8. And as we, uh, we look at that, we can see that, that Paul, we begin and we, we, we end up with Stephen being killed, martyred. And by the way, the word martyred, you will be my witnesses. That we find in chapter 1, verse 8, is the same word that's used for martyr. So we see, in a way, it's almost prophetic. And um, uh, so we see that, the, that Stephen is martyred. And then we see, we're introduced to Paul, Saul. And you're going to find that Saul, uh, if, if you haven't read the book of Acts yet, I, had to, I hate to kind of be a... a a spoiler, but Saul is going to become Paul, and he's the one that goes on to preach the gospel to the end of the, of, of the earth. He, he kind of finishes that part of Acts 1 for us and leaves us with the gospel going out to, uh, to, the, to the ends of the, the known earth of, of that time. And so 
Here is Paul, called Saul at that time, ravaging the church, the enemy of the gospel, doing all that he can to destroy the church and to kill it and, and to scatter it. And it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if y'all have seen the uh, Mickey Mouse where he's the wizard and he, he, he's, he takes over and he has the brooms that are taking the water into the well and putting the well in and, and all of a sudden he realizes, wait a minute, stop. And he can't stop them. So he takes an ax and he just chops them all up and, little, and they're all in little pieces. And then they get up and they start moving along even more. And maybe that was, Saul was kind of like, how do you stop this? They just keep coming and coming and they keep coming and there's no stopping. There's no stopping the gospel, is there? There's no stopping the gospel. So the gospel, as it's preached, as it's proclaimed, results in martyrs. To this very day, from the time of Stephen to this very day, there have been martyrs. And, and martyr, we always think of a martyr as somebody who gives their life for the sake of the witness of the gospel. And, and, and it is sometimes a violent death. I had a friend, um, Fonwell. Uh, I knew him from my time of studies at Columbia CIU, uh, who uh, was from Zimbabwe. And one day we were working together, doing some work as students, student work. And he, we were he was telling us a story about going out, taking his students out, to share the gospel there in Zimbabwe. He was a Bible teacher in a Bible college there. And uh, he was stopped by some Marxists. And they told him, if we ever see you all sharing the gospel or even carrying the Bible, we'll line you up and we'll shoot you. And they said that while they held guns to their heads. And there was a silence and so we were like, well, so, so do you? <laughs> and he, he said, well, and he, he spoke this Oxford English, I'll never forget him saying, you know, sometimes it's hard to be a Christian. Sometimes it's hard to be a Christian, isn't it? And really, the martyr is one who's willing to give up whatever it is that has to be given up in order to share the gospel, wherever that might be. And so Philip was willing to go on. Philip was, a, was, a, was with Stephen. They were elected as deacons together. It's interesting that it was the deacons that were going out. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. It was the deacons, it was the, the, the laymen, it was the people that were going out sharing the gospel. And they went out and he started sharing the gospel. And, and we, so we see for the first point is, my first point is that to share the gospel means there's going to be persecution. And we have to simply accept that fact. Not only do we need to accept that fact, but we need to embrace it. We need to embrace it and accept it and pray for our brothers or sisters and ourselves when that because that persecution is going on. Even as I speak. And you know what else it calls for? It calls for us to pray for those who persecute us. Because here you have Paul, who's then called Saul, putting people in jail, many of whom died. People, he was killing Christians. And yet, God, you're going to find very shortly, he's going to turn him around. Nothing is going to stop the gospel. And we are to pray for our enemies. 
We are to pray for our brothers and sisters that are in persecution. So that's verses 1 through 4. And now we go on to uh, 4, 5 through, uh, really, through, through the, uh, 18 or so. So Philip goes and he's preaching in Samaria. And now you need to really have to understand what's going on here. There's two main problems that, that pop up. I mean, everything is great. Philip is sharing the gospel with power. People are listening to him. Uh, they are they're receiving him. They're believing him. But then the, the apostles come down and they say, well, but they don't have the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? How can that be? When you believe in Jesus Christ, you should have the Holy Spirit. So why didn't they have the Holy Spirit? Well, in order to, to gain a, an understanding of that, I think we need to understand the relationship between the, the Jews in Jerusalem and, and the what would be called, I guess, the Samaritans, who are at best considered half-Jews, okay? So if you go back to 930 BC, that was when Rehoboam, the, the king who had replaced Solomon, so there was Saul, the first king, and then David, and then Solomon, and then Rehoboam. When Rehoboam became king, the people came to him, they said, all the people said, look, you built a temple, you built this huge house, you taxed us, you worked us, we've given you 30,000 people, we need a break. And Rehoboam said, no, I'm gonna be harder on you. And so they rebelled. And, and so the kingdom was divided. And uh, Jeroboam, though, in his, in his, had a problem. You see, because all the people of Israel, where did they go to worship? They go to Jerusalem. And if there's one thing that politicians learn throughout history is that if you want to have power, you've got to control your religion. And so he set up two idols, two bulls, two golden calves. And he said, this is where we worship, here. We don't go down to Jerusalem anymore. We worship here. Now, the, the two kingdoms, they fought amongst themselves for a few hundred years. And then in 722 um, BCE, Assyria came down and just wiped out northern Israel because of their idolatry, because they had left God. There was a severe discipline of the Lord. They literally just wiped them out. And Assyria had this... Uh, strange way of controlling the territory. What they do is they take all the people, or the people, uh, not necessarily all, but many of the people of that area, and they would put them somewhere else in the territory. And they would replace the people with other people. So they're just mixing all these people up. And that way, no one people would be the same. Um, and they, that's how they control their country. There's one problem though. When the new people came down, According to First Kings um, or Second Kings, the the uh, there were these lions. They were literally killing the people, and apparently there's a big problem. You know, I mean, if one lion comes and kills somebody, usually people go out and they kill a lion, and that's the end of that, right? But these lions were killing the people, and the, and the people were telling that it got to the king of Assyria with a message, hey. We need somebody to come down and teach the people about this God over here because this God is not very happy with us. We need somebody who can teach them the customs of the land of his people. So the king of Assyria sent down a priest to Bethel and he taught them the law. And so this, the, that area of Samaria, the northern kingdoms, developed their own law based on the five books of the Bible. 
it's a corrupted translation. Uh, it, it has a lot of, of their own interpretation of it, but it was basically the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so they had that one thing in common. But there had been years, hundreds of years of infighting, of hate, of betrayal, of mistrust, uh, of the, the separation of cultures. So here they were, the Lord was bringing them back together again. Now I want you to imagine, you know, it wasn't that long ago, within even my lifetime, there was a time when schools and, and society was segregated. There was this thing called Jim Crow laws. And Jim Crow laws were laws that said that colored people were not to even so much as touch white people's items or things. So there were signs all over the Southwest about no Mexicans allowed. And there, was, there were signs that said that, that uh, African Americans, blacks could only go through around the back, or they could only be served at certain places. Why? Because they couldn't touch the white people, and the white people couldn't touch the black. There was this animosity hundreds of years of mistrust. That's exactly what the Samaritans and the Israelites were going through. And what did God do to reaffirm the Samaritans as a part of the family of God? He brought in the apostles, the Jews, and they touched them and they received the Holy Spirit. You see, this passage isn't about there being a second blessing. This passage isn't about not about somebody not having a, a, some knowledge about the Holy Spirit that other people know about. This passage is about God reconciling His people and Him being God, sovereign. And the apostles went and they touched and people received the Holy Spirit. The second problem we have is with a man named Simon. He was a narcissist. <laughs> and the problem was he believed. Now what is a narcissist? The narcissist is somebody who's just all about himself. The other day I was at school. I'm a school teacher at La Vega Vita School. And you know, you stand at the door and watch the hallway kids traffic, make sure they're not doing anything really um, dangerous or making sure they're doing what they're supposed to do. And one of my students that knows me, he runs by me and he touches me. He's not, he's not supposed to be running. And he, he says, Tag, you're it. And he runs off. And then he turns around and looks at me and I said, I know. Now get to class. And I was like, oh, that's kind of narcissistic, isn't it? But that's a narcissist, somebody who is completely self-absorbed in themselves. Everything is about them. And this is Simon. I mean, when you're called the great power of God, how much narcissistic can you get than that? And the real problem, though, that we have here in this passage is it says that he also believed. Oh, can narcissists be saved? Can a narcissist be saved? And there's this thing, is, was Simon really saved? I mean, in the, in the commentaries and stuff, they have all this information about how he's a heretic and how he's the first narcissist. Uh, uh, all sorts of heresies are centered around this name. And they even had uh, this term, Simony, 
related to him. Seventy is basically where uh, people would buy positions, like oh, I want to be the bishop of Austria. So you're the bishop of Austria. You don't do anything there. You don't even live there. You just collect the fees from the from the offerings. And so that's seventy to purchase positions within the church for your own uh, for your own gain. Well, I think. Simon really shows us more than just that being wrong. And if you really think about it, there's a little bit of narcissism in all of us. And it comes out more often sometimes than others. But what we see with, with Simon is that he, he, uh, he wanted power. For him, religion was all about power. And there was a lot of power. There is a lot of power. I want you to think about this. When was, I'll never forget the day I was reading 1 Corinthians. And, and, and the scripture said, don't you know that you are not yourself, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Yeah. What do you mean? A temple is a body of the Holy Spirit. God is in me. Wow. You mean, you mean the God? The God that was hovering at the water, the, the God that, that was at creation, the Spirit of God, He's in me. And I read the scripture again, and it's like, you mean, you mean the God, the God that, that came down like a dove on Christ in the beginning of his mission, that, that spirit is in me. Yeah. You mean the God, the God that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, that God is in me. The scripture said, yeah. You know that. That's power. It's God's power. And Simon saw the apostles laying their hands on the Samaritans and the people receiving the Holy Spirit. And he said, you know, I want that. How much does it worth? I'll buy it from you. And Peter's words, <laughs> Philip translation, I like is the best translation. Philip, the way he translates, he says, to hell with your money. <laughs> and you. Literally. And what he was telling, he wasn't just cursing, he was telling him, you are going to end up in hell with that kind of attitude. You see, that's the amazing thing about the gospel is it isn't about me, it isn't about you, it isn't about, it is about God. And it is about his grace and his mercy and his love. So, you know, I've dealt with um, narcissistic people for a long time. And the one, most, the narcissist again that I know the most and most intimately is myself. And uh, within, especially within evangelical um, churches, conservative churches that believe the Bible, there's a lot of narcissists. There's a lot of men, I've met a lot of men who, men who, who had perfectly good intentions at the beginning, but who ended up developing a kingdom and, and somehow that kingdom morphed into the kingdom of God, into the kingdom of whoever. My kingdom now. And, and I, I've seen that in, in churches, I've seen it personally, I've seen it in my own life. I saw it on the mission field, fighting all these political fights. 
And, and there's some, some certain things that I, I really think we need to consider. First of all, and this all has to do with how do I know when God is speaking to me and when he's not? In my own life, in my own situation, I know that when I come up with some kind of plan, I have my agenda. And when that agenda becomes more important than loving my brother or sister, that's the beginning of narcissism. And narcissism is nothing other than idolatry. And that is how you're never going to hear the Spirit of God. What are your agendas? We all have agendas. And they can be good agendas. I had agendas on the mission field. I wanted to start churches. But all of a sudden, my career became more important than me loving people. That is narcissism. People placed in leadership positions face certain temptations, so you need to pray for us. Some find themselves in situations in which vulnerable individuals become targets of predatory tendencies. In such cases, it is easier to control someone than it is to lead them. There are such a thing, or there is such a thing, as pastoral predators. And they use false vulnerability and learn humility and their position of authority to gain trust and then use what is perceived as humility as a means of controlling individuals who view the predator as a prophet, someone who should be submitted to. And this in turn leads to personality cults in which the pastor, the counselor, the church worker becomes an object of worship. You see, that's why we're in a system where we're accountable to each other. Because no one, no one is above that. What's the signs and the symptoms of such a situation and how can the church avoid or correct and minister to those who have fallen into such a sin? Like I said, I've experienced vocational idolatry as a missionary, as an elder in the church, and in personal relationships. And in each context, idolatry rears its ugly head when I allow my ideas or desires to become more important than my relationship to Jesus Christ. In my experience, when I formulate an agenda and the agenda becomes more important than the people whom the Lord has called me to love, this is the first sign of idolatry. James warns us in chapter 3, verses 14 to 16, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every body. In this passage, we have two contrasting views. Simon represents the view of our present pragmatic culture, which asks the questions, what's in it for me? What is it worth? Is it worth it? Is giving my life to Christ worth it? Is it worth taking up a cross and following Jesus? Is it worth dying to self in order to live for Christ? Is it worth putting others, including my enemies, 
before me? Is it worth serving others? Is it worth the persecution sure to come my way? Is this, well, this is the thinking, my friends, of a narcissist. <laughs> Philip, Stephen, and my friend Funwell represent a better way, a way of hope, of love, and of faith. As Funwell said, sometimes being a Christian is hard. But the question is not, is it worth it? The truth is summarized in Revelation 5. Beginning at verse 9. Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Each has a choice, each of us. Do you ask the question, is it worth it? Or do you declare your allegiance? He is worthy. For some, it's a dilemma. I like Jim Elliott's point of view. We said, he said it's, he's no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. So how do I know when the Holy Spirit is speaking? You'll know him when you give yourself to him, you repent of your self-centeredness, and you believe in his goodness. So, if you want to do a character study of, of this, look at Saul in the Old Testament, not the Saul that were introduced here in chapter 8. It's kind of interesting that we have two Sauls. But if you look at Saul, the first king of Israel, now there was a narcissist. All right. And if you look at his character and you look at his life, you'll see one road, the low road. But then you see David. Compare those two characters. And um, here's a little study of the character of David and, and Saul. Have you ever wondered why Saul was pinned to a wall? That Gilgal? Was it pride, vainglory, lust for power? What has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? He kept on hearing, but didn't understand. He kept on saying, but didn't perceive. In despair, he grasped for a kingdom. In despair, he was apart from God. Stripped of his armor, three sons slain, decapitated at the battle of Gilboa. How the mighty have fallen? Do we grieve the loss or focus on gain? Have you ever wondered how David fell, looking down on a woman, called, to her, called her to his bed, murdered Uriah? He took her as his wife, tried to cover his sin, until Nathan rebuked him and the child died. Saul, a man of despair, David found hope in despair. When Solomon was born, Solomon became king, built the temple, wrote with wisdom, yet even he fell. Have you ever wondered how the cross covers our sin? Are we set free to be disciples? Are we seeing and receiving, hearing and understanding? In the midst of chaos and despair, how is your faith displayed? 
She is no fool who gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. It's not just what you say. It's not what you claim. It's what you do. It's who you are. What kind of life do you live? Do you will only one thing? And is that one thing to will the good? In the midst of chaos and despair, how the Savior displays his mercy. Listen to what he says. Look at his claim. Watch what he has done. It's grace. It's who he is. Even our mistakes, our shortcomings, are turned to good. No harder for God to deal with than our supposedly good deeds. Let's pray.